The guys have some Bibles, so if you need one, and we want everybody to follow along, then get their attention, and they'll get one to you. It's marked at Ephesians 6, so you don't have to fumble around to find it. And Ephesians 6 is, as you will see when you get there, the last chapter in the book of Ephesians, and so we are closing in on finishing our series that's been going for many months now. Through this book, and the title of the entire series is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. I have become convinced over the years through studying the Word of God and also from interacting with people that the most important factor in how we handle our circumstances is perspective. That is, the most important issue, the one that determines how I act and react in my situation, is how I view the situation. My perspective. So if I find myself in a car accident, and then in the hospital, if my perspective is, if I view that as a random event in the cosmos, outside the purview and the providential hand of God, I'll lay in that bed bewildered, perhaps angry, certainly very anxious. But think about a radically different perspective. What if I truly believe what I've said for a lot of years? That God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. If I really believe that, if that's my perspective, then I'll have a calmness, I'll have a peace, even in difficulty. And in my relationships, the personal interactions that are part of my web of connectedness to other people, how I view those will determine how I act and react in them. Two weeks ago, as we began to look into family relationships in our continuing study of Ephesians, I said this, that many of you had and have desires, and now speaking to the marriage relationship, desires for your spouse to be a particular way and do and say particular things. And when it didn't turn out that way, perhaps not even close to the way you thought, your desires morphed into demands. Some of you may remember that from a couple of weeks ago. And I went on to say, you see, you have come to see your relationships with an ownership mentality. And because I own it, I do with this relationship what I please. God says to humbly defer to the needs of your spouse. But owners don't defer, they demand. God says, humbly speak, seek forgiveness when you sin against your spouse, but owners don't answer to their employees. They demand that they perform. God says, endure difficult circumstances and difficult people for the sake of Christ. But owners don't endure. They demand conformity to their desires. Now, I remind us of that because that applies to all our relationships. If my perspective on any relationship is that I own it, 
it will radically affect the way I pursue it. And today now, as we've been looking at family relationships in Ephesians 6, we come to the relationship between children and parents. And so I ask you, who owns our children? And just like I asked two weeks ago, who owns the marriage relationship? I said, you know, if you answer quickly, well, God does, because we all know that's the right answer. But is that really the way it looks in practice? God owns my marriage. Would my kids, as they see me interact with my spouse, say, God owns that relationship? And as we answer the question, who owns our children? You might quickly say, yes, pastor, I affirm God owns our children. But does it look that way? The Bible says very directly, Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord. You see, friends, they belong to God. And they've been entrusted to us for a very, very, very short time. And for a very, very, very important purpose. If God's the owner, then I must use the owner's manual with regard to how I bring them up. If God is the owner, I don't get to invent and experiment and make it up as I go, as an owner could do, and as, unfortunately, so many professing Christians do. On what basis are you rearing your children as you are? On what basis have you determined whether or not you're a good parent? Is it if they have the experiences I had when I was a kid or wish I had when I was a kid? If that's happening, things are going okay. Or is your basis if they seem to be enjoying themselves? Or in their relationship with others? What is it that governs what you allow them to do and don't allow them to do? Is it what most everybody else is doing? Or it's not as bad as what the majority is doing, so I'll take what I can get? In your discipline, how do you determine the approach that you'll take? Now, the worst thing you can do as a public speaker, including a preacher, is to bring up a bunch of questions that you don't intend to answer. In your... <laughs> I've given a bunch of stuff, and I could give a bunch more that relate to, am I the owner or is God the owner? As we look at Ephesians 6, we're going to look in principial form. What God says about where children fit into our family relationships and what parents are to be doing in that relationship. And in so doing, it's my hope that we're reminded that our children belong to God. And as a result, we'll begin to think about how that applies to the kinds of situations that I've described and so many more. 
It's a big undertaking, to put it mildly. You can't do it, parent, alone. You cannot do it without the grace of God. You cannot do it, I submit, you cannot do it without the grace of God given to you in the form of a church family. Really. You need the help of a church family. It takes a church to raise a child. And you need a church family to help you with that. To help you become the man that you are to be. The woman that you are to be. The spouse that you are to be. The the parent that you are to be. And by God's grace, for you as the primary agent, but then us together to rear that children. To see them move in the direction that God has designed. We need all the help that a gracious God gives us. And we need to go to Him right now for a few moments. Ask him to help us as we're reminded of this awesome responsibility. Father, we come to you thinking about the awesome, unbelievably awesome and impossible responsibility of being your conduit, your agent in the precious life of another. You have for many of us placed in our care one made in your image. Fearfully and wonderfully made, uniquely made, but made in the image of God and one who will live or die eternally. Oh Lord God, help us to see the enormity of the task. Help us to see our own weakness. Help us to be willing to face our own sloth and our own misdirection as we've taken the owner's manual and rewrote it in our own image. Oh Lord, help me. Help us to leave this place as parents and as a family of families, a church family, determined to honor you in the parent-child relationship. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have an outline for you in your program. If you'll take a look at that. I have a number of points. You see a bunch of blanks there. So let's see how far we can get. The first point that God's Word makes for us in Ephesians chapter 6 is this. Children have good reason to obey parents. Children have good reason to obey parents. Verse 1 of Ephesians 6 says this. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, there are a number of things about these first three verses addressed to children that could be pointed out and elaborated on, but time does not permit. But let me just highlight some very significant things about this passage. One, it's addressed to children. Children do this. Now, just think about that for a second. God Almighty has written a book. And in that book, God addresses children. 
Well, that tells you all kinds of things. God cares about what he's made. God cares about what he has crafted in his image. These children that belong to him, he addresses them very directly. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We sometimes get the idea that, you know, the Bible is all about adults. It's an adult book, all of that. Nothing could be further from the truth. You all know that in Matthew 18, Jesus' first followers told some children to stay away from Jesus. Jesus said, no, 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 you let the little children, allow the little children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Children are being directly addressed in this passage. And for our children who are in children's church right now, parents, pass on to them what God says to them very directly in this passage. When this letter was written, like all of the New Testament letters, it would arrive at Ephesus or Philippi or Colossae, the city to whom Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians was written, and the church would gather, including the children. And they would read the letter aloud. That's foreign to us. Because we now have the completed Bible. We have it codified in, in a completed book. But they were getting the letters as they came, as it were. And the letter arrives, and we have a letter now here to us, the church at Ephesus, from our brother Paul, who founded this church many years ago. And he's writing back to us now to instruct us. And the family of God would be gathered, and the children would be there. And you come toward the end of the letter, and can you imagine being one of those children? And have God address you through the pen of the great apostle and say, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And you have good reason to do this. It is right for you to do so. And that means, and I have point A for you in your outline. Here's the very first reason. They should obey because of natural law. Now, say, wow, that was a curveball. What's that mean? When it says at the end of verse 1, obey your parents in the Lord, here's why. Four, here's the reason. It's right. It's right for you to do so. What it's addressing is this, that God has made His world and so ordered His world such that it is right, it is fitting, it is proper for children to be instructed by their parents and to follow their direction. And because God has made it this way, even those who are outside of Christ know that's the way it should be. Cultures throughout the world and throughout history have recognized that to be the case. But as sin overtakes a culture, and people gradually reject the instruction that God has given, they will also reject the light that God has provided, according to Romans 2, in their consciences, telling them what is right and what is wrong. And there'll be disastrous results. Romans chapter 1 tells us of those disastrous results. Notice what it says. Since they, that is, collectively, societies rejecting God, not thinking it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And as a result, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. And then it goes on to lists. This awful list. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil. Now notice this. Really? Disobeying parents fits in that list? This is how seriously God Almighty takes what He has ordered in His world and what He has made to be apparent, apparently right, but in sin is rejected. Obey parents. It's right. God has made it that way. The Bible says this. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. We say, I'm glad we're not in terrible times. I'm glad because we're not in the last days. Not so fast. When did the last days begin? According to the Bible, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God, who at times past and in various ways spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The last days began when Jesus came. And you mark this. In the last days, there will be terrible times. And people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient to their parents. When you see a society in which order has broken down, particularly then in the home, where children are insolent and disobedient to parents. We see it everywhere in our world. The Bible is saying in Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians 3 that that's a sign of judgment by God rendered on that society. Now hear this. It's not a sign of judgment to come. We think that. We think there's going to be this, and there will be a final reckoning, but God is saying in Romans 1 that it is a sign that God has already given them over to as a judgment because of an unwillingness to follow what He has made apparent in nature. And then we are going to see as well in His Word also. And so Paul, who wrote this, says it's right for children to obey their parents. It's almost universally recognized that children should obey their parents, even where the gospel is not the predominant message that's given. Even where Christianity is nothing more than a minor religion, where they recognize that children should still obey their parents. Confucius, long before the time of Christ, taught that children should obey parents. In China, Japan, Korea, they're taught that children should obey parents. It's something that's natural to humanity. Stoic philosophers taught that children were to obey parents. Pagan moralists of all kinds recognized that it's right for children to obey parents. But we naturally rebel because of our sin nature against what should be natural and what is right. And therefore, God has written to us specifically about what he has also placed in the conscience of man in nature. And that's point B in your outline. Children have very good reasons to obey their parents. They should obey because of natural law, but they should also obey because of spiritual law. 
And that's what verses 2 and 3 are telling us. God has made explicit in Scripture what He has placed in the conscience of humanity in nature. Verse 2, honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise. Now, you all recognize this. As the fifth command of the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. Now, we, most of us, have recognized that in the Ten Commandments, you have commandments relating to, directly relating to our relationship with God, and then commandments that relate to our relationship with one another. And what most of us have done is said there are four. The first four of the Ten Commandments relate to our relationship with God. And the last six relate to our horizontal relationships with one another. And so numbers 5 through 10 are about our relationship with one another. Here's what's interesting. In Judaism, Jews had the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments divided in 5 and 5, not 4 and 6. And they saw this fifth command as actually relating first and foremost to one's relationship with God. Honoring your father and your mother, obeying them in the Lord, was a matter of your relationship to the Lord. And so the Bible says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father and observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. This is a matter of your relationship with God. The Bible goes on to say, and before I put this up here, let me tell you, the next two I put up have some shock value. Because God really cares about what he says. And God really cares about the way he orders things and when it is violated, he has very often instituted strict remedies. Here's what he says. If anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, and his blood will be on his own head. Y'all see how seriously that takes us? This is the order that I have given to humanity. It is recognized in nature, but because of our sinful nature, we reject it. I have given direct command with regard to it. It's a reflection of your relationship with me, and I take that so seriously when it is violated. Everyone will see, and everyone will fear. He says that in another passage. If a man has a stubborn, rebellious son, who does not obey his father and his mother will not listen to them when they discipline him. His father and mother take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. All the men of this town will stone him to death. All the men of this town. Why? This ain't happening. This is not going to transpire in our town. And every one of you are going to see that as a lesson to you to ensure that you follow very carefully what I have told you to do, what I, God, hold dear. You must purge the evil from among you. 
and all Israel will hear it and rightly be afraid. Now, you say, that is just too harsh for my 2012 sensibilities. I understand. It's tough for me as well. That's why I warned you. It's the first part of your Bible. It's the Old Testament. It's called Old for a reason. We're now in the New Testament. But understand, friends, in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the character of God has never changed. Did you know that? He has remained the same. And he still requires that what he says be implemented. Now, we're not under the Old Testament, so we're not under the stoning and the requirement of capital punishment for the kids who disobey and all of that. But we are under the requirements of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, given to children and given to parents, and failure to follow those commands by our God for our good is looked on by Him in the most serious of manners. And so Paul gives a reason. There are natural reasons to obey your parents. There are spiritual reasons. And in the spiritual reason, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And then in verse 3, he lists the promise for us, that it may be well with you and you may live long upon the earth. Now, how is that related to obeying parents? really come to a sad time in our culture when (laughs) you have to prove to people that a child is always better off when that child has a mother and a father at home who take their responsibilities seriously and a child who sees that he or she is the blessed recipient of a gift from God in this home and thus willingly obeys. The child who does that, and every statistic, shows you that children who come from those kind of stable homes, where parents take their responsibility seriously, and children see their responsibility to obey as not onerous, but as a gift from God. Indeed, do better in life. In things like going to school, and career, and all sorts of things. They're kept from harm, not absolutely, but generally. And so it will go well with you. You will live long because you have been taught, and what you have been taught protects you as you go through life. Children should obey because of natural law and spiritual law, but I want you to notice another reason. See in your outline, they should obey because of Christ's law. It says in verse number 3, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse number 1, children, obey your parents, but notice how, in the Lord. And that phrase, in the Lord, brings child obedience into the realm of specifically Christian duty. Now hear this carefully, it lays upon children the responsibility to obey their parents because of their own personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should our children obey? Because hopefully they've come to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Obey in the Lord. 
It's He who as Creator first established order in family and society. And in the new society which He's now building, He does not overthrow that. There's an essential continuity between the old order and the new. Between the original creation and now our new creation in Christ. Families have not been abolished. Men and women still marry and have children. And in the Lord there are still husbands and wives and parents and children. What has changed, friends, is this. It's our relationship to the ravages of the fall. For the family life which God created at the beginning and pronounced to be good was spoiled by sin and human rebellion and selfishness. And as a result, relationships fall apart. Society is fractured. Love is twisted into lust. Authority into oppression. But now, blessedly now, in the Lord, by His reconciling work, God's new society has begun. And begins in your Christ-centered home. And it's continuous with the old in the fact that family life continues in the same quality that God originally designed and is now restored. Now in all our relationships, they're transformed precisely because they are in the Lord. And our relationships have been purged of their self-centeredness. And instead, they've been infused with Christ's love and His peace. And even obedience to parents has changed. It should no longer be a grudging acceptance of parental authority. Christian children learn to obey with gladness, for this pleases the Lord. They remember the loving submission that Jesus Himself gave as a boy to His parents. And now this same Jesus and their Savior and the creator of this new order is anxious that they do what pleases Him and has placed in them a desire to do so. Children have good reasons to obey their parents. They have natural reasons. They have the reasons from natural law, from spiritual law, and from Christ's law as well. I want you to notice secondly in our passage that not only do children have good reason to obey, but secondly, parents have good reason to raise their children. Parents have good reason to raise their children. Verse 4, fathers. Now, let me stop there. Why fathers? And we were talking about parents, and I said a father and a mother at home is always what's best for a child. And why is then it just addressed to, to fathers? Well, let me quote for you from one commentator who points out the, the reason. Jay Adams says this, When Paul speaks to the fathers, he is speaking to the mothers. And the reason that he addresses the fathers is that what the mothers do, the fathers are responsible for. In addressing the father, he's addressing the one in whom God has vested his authority for discipline. We have already seen that the husband is to be the head of the home. And the father is the one who ultimately must answer to God for what happens in the home. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about the proverb, Everything rises and falls on leadership. 
And so verse 4 says, Fathers, and then by extension, mothers, do not exasperate your children. So parents have good reason to raise children. What are they? The first one in your outline is this. They should raise them because it's necessary to do so. It's necessary for children to be raised because in that prohibition in verse 4, fathers, do not do this. You're prohibited from doing this. Do not exasperate your children. In that prohibition, we see the vulnerability of our children. They're vulnerable to the authority that God has given us, vulnerable to the abuse of that authority. And so God warns, do not exasperate your children. I'll explain what that means. So they should raise them because it's necessary. It's necessary because, number one in your outline, children are indeed vulnerable. God places these tiny lives in our care. He entrusts them to us. He vests us with authority over them to which they are to obey. But in every authority submission relationship, there is vulnerability. And there is the possibility of that authority being abused. One way in which it's abused, among many, many, is exasperating your children. And God says do not do that. Now what's it mean when it says exasperate? Well, this word exasperate, ex means out of. Exasperate, the second part of that word comes from Spirate, like if somebody has a respiratory problem, respiratory problem, they have a breathing problem. And to exasperate means don't take the air out of them. Literally, it's don't take the wind out of their sails. And how many ways can a parent abuse his or her authority and take the wind out of the sails of that vulnerable child? May it never be, ever, from the lips of any parent, and especially a parent who claims Jesus Christ, that we demean this gift that God has given us. That we call them names. That we tell them they're worthless or they're stupid. Go through a long list of epithets that could be applied to children and unfortunately are applied to children and many children have to endure that day after day and week after week. And as a result, the wind is taken out of their sails. They do something with their hands to create and they proudly come and show it to the one that God has placed in their life who to them for that period of time is like God. They come and show the product of their creativity. And it's demeaned. That will stay with that child for the rest of his or her life. You have heard me say the Bible does not teach what the self-esteem movement teaches. Our objective is not to artificially inflate our children. It is not. It's not to lie to them and tell them everybody wins. See, that's a lie. Because here's why. Everybody doesn't win. And here's the bad news for them. They're going to find that out. So you ought to tell them the truth. Everybody doesn't win. 
We're not going to artificially inflate their self-esteem, but we will avoid at all costs deflating who they are as a unique creation of God. By what we say and how we say it. And in telling them positively who they are in Jesus. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Gifted directly by him to participate in his work in his world. Did you all hear me pray when these kids were up here? They get an opportunity to participate in a small way in God's work. And we inflate properly now who they are by telling them these are the possibilities for you uniquely gifted by God to be used by God in his world there's nothing better do not exasperate doesn't mean artificially inflating their ego and their self-esteem it does mean giving them an accurate picture of who they are in Jesus failure to do it is very serious indeed There's the second part of that one verse that I read but didn't show you. But notice what Colossians 3 says. Fathers, do not, and it doesn't say do not exasperate. It says do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Many a child has grown up bitter. And his or her parents, because early on and often, They took the wind out of that child's sails. So this is what we do not do. We raise our children. It's necessary. Why? Because they're vulnerable. Understanding that vulnerability means we're extremely careful about what we say and how we say it. But secondly, here's why it's necessary in your outline. Not only are they vulnerable, but it's necessary to raise our children because they're sinful. You see, friends, sin sin adds a whole dimension to this thing. There's all kinds of bad stuff for my kid to get involved in. And so I must now raise my child. Actively, as we're going to see, raise my child. They're vulnerable, so I avoid the negative approaches that many parents take, that take the wind out of their sails, But they're sinful. They live in a fallen world. And they are by nature, as are we, attracted to what the world provides. And God has given us as a safeguard for them, presumably wiser, to show them the dangers for them in this fallen world. It's necessary for us to actively raise them because they are sinful. If left to themselves, if raised by passive parents, make no mistake, absolutely, that child will move in the direction of the sinful culture. If there is not an intervention, (laughs) that's the natural bent of every child. We all, like sheep, have done what? Gone astray. That's what the child will do. The child needs to be directed in the right path intentionally and regularly directed in the right path because they are sinful. And so this command in verse 4, bring them up. It says instead bring them up. That command to bring them up 
is indeed that. It is a, it's in the imperative mood in Greek. Imperative means it's a command. You bring them up. It's written, that command, bring them up, is written in Greek in what's called the active voice. It's a command that requires you to actively participate. That command, bring them up, is not only in the imperative mood and the active voice, but it's written in the present tense. Here's what that means. It's a continual responsibility for the parent to actively be involved in raising their children, directing them because it's necessary. And it is necessary because they are sinful. Now I'm going to have to leave the rest of it until next time because I've run out of time. And next time is going to be in three weeks because I'll be out of the country next Wednesday and I'll arrive back on Saturday and Pastor Matt is going to preach two weeks from today and then I will continue this on February the 19th. Sorry. However, let me conclude by saying this. Parents, Hollywood is not to raise your children. The fashion industry is not to raise your children. You are to raise your children. And what our children do and participate in is not to be dictated by the culture and its whims, its fashions and its media. Too many parents are passive in this regard. And they allow the culture to determine what our children will watch and participate in and where and where. And how they'll interact with members of the opposite sex. Instead of looking at the owner's manual, we let the culture determine that. You know, when I was, when I was a kid... When I, I had, a, I had a, a girlfriend when I was 13. I'm just making this up. This is not autobiographical. But when I was a kid, I had a girlfriend at 13. So, and, and look at me. I turned out great. Well, we'll be the judge of that, but nonetheless. And so because I did it, it's okay if she does it or he does it. Really? And, and where did you get that from the Bible? that your child should be dating at 13. I know the culture says that. You know, I know Hannah Montana's been saying that for a long time. I know, you know, whoever. But where does God say that? Parent, I know what the other kids wear. So try to make it a little bit better. And where does God say that? You, parent, you, dad. Let me just talk. Dad, you're responsible. God says this. You bring them up actively, not the culture, not the media, not the fashion industry. I just got to tell you something. I'm really going to get off this rant. 
But I've got to tell you that I don't understand for the life of me how a Christian father could allow his girl to go outside wearing some of the things that you guys allow your girls to wear. Now, I'm just being straight up with you. As a dad of two precious daughters, should I know the color of your daughter's bra strap? Because she felt like showing it. I really don't want to know that. And you really shouldn't want anybody else to know that. I know the culture wants everybody to know that. But you shouldn't. And Dad, you actively take care of that. And you say you're not going out of the house like that. And if your wife thinks she should, or he should, wearing exposing whatever he's exposed. If she thinks it's okay, then you need to deal with her. Do you see, my friends, I'm making an impassioned plea to you. Do not let the culture raise your children. Do not let the media raise your children. God has given you the responsibility to actively raise your children according to his owner's manual. If you say, you know, I don't know what that looks like, and we've been drifting for so long, just trying to keep it a little bit better than the worst in the culture. But we've been drifting so long that now we've got kind of a tiger by the tail. We've let our kid do this for so long. Well, we, we do. We have a tiger by the tail. You need help with that. Do you remember what I said at the beginning? It takes a church to raise a child. There's help for that. I offer, I offer to help you. Set that right. But I am begging you, fathers, set it right now. Set it right now. I do not want to be the pastor of families who look back and say, oh, I wish we would have. Now is the time. There are so many things I could say to you. I'll leave it at that. But may the grace of God convict our hearts to raise our children as these gifts that are a heritage from Him for His purposes. And may we leave, believe it or not, with everything I've said, <laughs> leave understanding that there's always great hope in the cross of Jesus and in the grace of God for us and for our children. Let's bow and ask His aid.